I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. And I am Hercule Poirot. I'm Tim McIntosh. Nice. This podcast is on. (laughs) That was good. Wait a minute. The podcast is just beginning. This is the podcast. This is a podcast for the incurable reader. (laughs) On which Tim is going to be insufferable. <laughs> okay, we are here just to, just to remind our <laughs> listeners before you get into like segues and all that, David. Last week I was persecuted. This week I get to gloat. Persecuted? It's that simple. Persecuted is a bit strong. It's the kind of thing that people say who have thin skin and strongly. Of, if by strong you mean happening right now, strongly Jackie. accurate. <laughs> <laughs> that that could be a new one instead of like Karen. Hey, lots of strong right? emotions there, Jackie. Yeah, yeah. Careful that you don't let. What's what does Poirot say to her? Don't let. Uh, the evil, the, the evil about, overcome yeah, you. Yeah, 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 enter your heart. Enter your heart. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, this is a podcast and for let this be a lesson. <laughs> the incurable reader, on which we are discussing the end of Agatha Christie's novel Death on the Nile. We will cover the last chapters here this week. Then next week we will do a Q and A episode. And February eleventh, the movie is due out. So sometime, as soon as we can all get a chance to see that movie, we will do an episode on that as well. Um, that'll be TBD. We should probably say, shouldn't we, David? Like, you know, if you want to watch the movie and be surprised, you probably shouldn't listen to the this podcast or the last podcast either. <laughs> You're right. I am going to be insufferable. I'm already enjoying <laughs> it. No, so we much. just you just got a moment of silence for that. We didn't. I mean, to be fair, we did persecute you a tiny bit, but. Mm-hmm. Not about being right. We were like pure poker face. We like we applaud you. Like we are so proud of you. Oh yeah, I'm I don't really, speak for David. I'm <laughs> really hearing the plaudits like rolling in. Oh my gosh! Well, please Heidi, stop. Heidi. I can't stand all the plaudits. You know that saying about a broken <laughs> clock, right? It's always right twice a day. Yeah. Oh, that is really? what they say. Occasionally. Yeah. 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 But with that level of accuracy, I guess, yeah. I mean, like, if the metaphor is going to stick, it is. Even a clock is right with that level of precision. <laughs> yeah, I mean, exactly. It's exactly right twice a day. <laughs> well, we're going to discuss. I am proud of you, Tim. We're going to discuss how proud we are of Tim's sure uh, predictions like and how this book, you know, concludes and what Christy does to make it work. And then, of course, the uh, the epilogue, the, the final bit of drama at the end of the story. Before that, though, before we get into our conversation, a couple of weeks ago, we told you about Signum University, and I want to let you know about them again. Because if you love books, languages, or creative writing, and you have a student that is 8 to 18, then they have programs that offer low-stress live online sessions where... You and your students can discuss their favorite books, participate in creative writing workshops, and learn awesome languages like Spanish, German, French, Japanese, Latin, Greek, even Old English and Old Norse. And you can attend your club's sessions from anywhere. So you can connect with other students from around the world under the guidance of passionate teachers who love the content as much as you do. It's perfect either as an extracurricular activity or as a supplement to, say, a homeschooling curriculum. And their clubs program is available, as I said, for students ages 8 to 18. So if any of this sounds like it would be interesting to you, 
you can head over to Signum University. That's S-I-G-N-U-M, signumuniversity.org slash academy, or shoot them an email at academy at signumu.org. That's the letter U, not Y-O-U, signumu.org. So yeah, if you want to say, dive into some old Norse, I can see Heidi digging in, digging into some old Norse. Or that would be so I can fun. also see Tim just randomly being like, this is the year in which I shall learn Japanese. Couldn't you see Tim mm. doing that? Mm. I've got a play oh, yeah. to research so for. So that he could read a biography of yes. the Japanese emperor. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Very well researched. And <laughs> exactly. He, he would want to be able to, to, double, <laughs> to, to double check the, the efforts of said biographer about mm-hmm. that Japanese. Mm-hmm. That Jap- you know. And the thing we know about Tim is Did how much he likes to be right. He likes to be right. Oh, yeah. So <laughs> it's, in, I don't know that likes to be right. I would just say is right. Hello? Sometimes. Hello, David? Heidi? Sometimes. Hello? What? <laughs> I, I think, oh, he, he fell off. Let's, let's continue on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think we lost him. Technical yeah. difficulties. His head, his head got so big, he just floated right away. <laughs> <laughs> Toppled right over. The great thing is I can mute on this, this episode. That's right. So. You have the power. Oh, that was nice. The that funny thing was, it, it, I got this little text box up in Zoom. It said, the host would like to unmute you. And it gave me an option. Like, do you want to <laughs> remain muted? Do or you want to come back? <laughs> yeah. I chose oh. to unmute myself. Uh, the host of these Zoom sessions still does have a modicum power. of power, which uh, uh, power. I may have to wield. Small. But mm-hmm. speaking of modicums of power... Hercule, Hercule Poirot, in the end, solved, solved the mystery, saved the day, showed just how smart he is, and in the meantime, seemed to make friends with a murderer. Uh, I want to talk about that later, though. Tim, you, you predicted correctly. That's the last time I'm going to tell you that. You corrected, mm-hmm. correct, predicted the, the, the solution last week. Yeah. And I'm sure there were lots of listeners who were cheering in their cars or, you know, whatever. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, how did, how, did you, how did you get to that? I mean, you talked about it a little bit, but how confident were you, actually, I should say, when you made that, when you made that prediction? Like, were you like, I read it on Wikipedia, and so I'm definitely certain no no as a matter of fact when i finished it this morning i thought to myself oh no david and heidi are going to think that i cheated which i like on everything that's holy i did not i had no idea how this thing was going to end the thing for me was simon just came in to the story in such a negative light Mm-hmm. He had all sorts of motives. Mm-hmm. The wild card for me was Jackie because I really believed her. I really believed her when she, um, if she and Simon were in cahoots with this, I really believed her anger with Simon. And so I was like, okay, mm-hmm. how can they be in cahoots if she's really this angry at Simon? But clearly she was just acting, insert, um, echoing cackle down the hallways of the, you know, the Nile liner. That, that Nile was the liner. wild card for me is I didn't, I didn't know. I, I couldn't explain her 
passionate hate for Simon, but oh well. well you know, oh that well. seems to be the thing that Poirot sees through. Yeah, right. Because he, as, as you get to the end of the book and he's kind of explaining and what he thought, for him, it was always about how much she loved him. Like it wasn't hate that he saw. It was this overwhelming love that he felt like was going to drive her to do something that he warned her against, even as even before the murder happened and he didn't realize they were in cahoots. He, he saw that for her, it wasn't rage. It was, it was love. And then it became clear that there was, you know, something else going on. As she says at the end, you know, they, the money was going to allow them to, to, live happily ever after that was the idea um they could have just run off together if it weren't for the money but then that brings in the simon thing as you said simon turns out not to be the great, greatest guy right and he he has that kind of like boyishness that like he seems unreliable and you know there's a lot of talk about men being reliable or unreliable in this book mm-hmm. and he seems like he's going to be unreliable mm-hmm. um but in the end he's just a He's just a, he just wants to live the good life. Yeah. Right. He's He's a narcissist. Yeah. For you having read this book several times, rereading it again with the ultimate solution in your memory bank and knowing what happened, does it all add up for you? Do all the clues add up? Does it, does it hold up for you? Uh, So it holds up. And I I think I said this, there's so many things probably that David and I, dear listener, we're very careful with over the last couple of weeks. Um, yeah, like we didn't say is did it. N- Yeah, well, that and other things, right? Um, yeah. It turns out Lynette is both a perpetrator and a victim. Mm-hmm. She's like, like the solution, although it's not all that surprising, takes the story to a very, very great psychological depth for those with eyes to see it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that stands up. There are some holes in the plot for sure. This isn't one of her greatest puzzles. Uh, there are other. Well, as Tim, same solution. Right. Revealed. Like there are <laughs> other puzzles. Well, and I think a lot of the reason why we get there is um, now, Tim, cover your ears. Okay. I'm not going to listen to it. Yeah. Uh, is because it is the solution that makes sense. It's very, I don't think there's any other satisfying solution to the others. Any other character would have been not satisfying. This is the way that the story makes sense with all of the psychological buildup, with all of the presentation of the characters. You kind of are like, it has to be Simon, right? But, or it has to be Jackie, but I don't know how it could be. So Mm -hmm. putting that together makes a fairly satisfying puzzle-ish, but overall, it's not her best puzzle. That I don't think is why it is enduring in her top, you know, 10 books. It's on all the lists. Mm -hmm. I I think it's less the puzzle and more the psychological depth uh, that, and the tone and like the, the emotional weight of the story that is so compelling. Yeah. I think there's a sense that like the person who gets murdered, you both feel for and also don't care for the girl who does the murder. You have sympathy for, and also like reject her approach to everything. You know, Simon, you don't totally know why she's in love with him. And in the end, you kind of feel bad for Jackie. I mean, there's like, all these different layers, as you said, of psychological depth in terms of the drama of the story and who you're supposed to root for and all that. And in the end, right. Right. You know, Poirot makes a very 
complex choice that adds some depth to his own motivations, right? You mean the epilogue, the very last chapter? Yeah, where chapter? he, he yeah. lets her have the gun and do away with them. You know, like justice is not going to be met in the court of law. They get to have this like Romeo and Juliet ending, or at least she does. <laughs> um, There's Poirot's very peculiar humanism again, which right. I find to be the most interesting thing about him. So, yeah. And that I think Tim, is you, another reason why the book works long-term is that it's this it's that that shared suicide at the end i think it makes it i know I've, I've even seen some responses on on facebook already about like an antipathy to it but i think it's one of i think it's one of the main reasons the book works hmm. boy i struggled with the end i i did You're not supposed like to the struggle end. with the end well there was two you- parts of it one of them was kind of like the moral aspect of Poirot kind of looking the other way and letting her have the gun and presumably letting her kill and kill herself. There's that problem. Then there's the other problem of, I just had a hard time believing the action. She pulls out a gun. She shoots him. No one like there's, we see no kind of like energy, no action to, to stop her, even though she's very clearly in the, like, she's like right there. All I have to do is like reach out, accost her. I don't know. I just found that to be not well done. And the more intriguing thing though, is what does it say about Poirot that he let this happen? I actually found that kind of, intriguing at least i mm-hmm. i kind of liked it but I, I i had a hard time getting over the action the action was an obstacle for me i i so there's this sentence that says she stood aside the bears picked up the handles of the stretcher uh, i do like the bit where it's almost like it's a funeral procession already before he's even mm-hmm. dead mm-hmm. the paul bears mm-hmm. so jacqueline bent down and tied the lace of her shoe then her hand went to her stocking top and she straightened up with something in her hand there was a sharp, explosive pop. Simon Doyle gave one convulsed shudder and then lay still. Jacqueline de Belfort nodded. She stood for a moment, for a minute, pistol in hand. She gave a fleeting smile at Poirot. Then as Race jumped forward, she turned the little glittering toy against her heart and pressed the trigger. The trigger. So I can see what you're saying. Like, I mean, I guess everyone just stands there in shock for a minute. But it says she stood for a minute. And that's kind of, maybe it's just that minute is a... Uh, like one minute is long enough. So maybe we're not supposed to take it literally as 60 seconds or right, something. So right. maybe, but I see what you're saying about, about the, the actual drama not being completely satisfying and how she plays it out, even as the situation is compelling. Is that yeah. kind of what you're saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like when Jack Ruby shot, who is JFK's murder? Why am I having a Lee Harvey brain Oswald? lock? Lee Harvey Oswald. Lee Harvey Oswald. Like there was absolute chaos from the moment before I mean, he pulled the trigger till- That's I mean, what they say. <laughs> no, I mean, like, you can see the pictures. Well, if they're not doctored. I mean, it's just, it's chaos. He pulls a trigger yeah. and it's just like all bedlam springs loose. Right. I just had a hard time thinking like everyone's stopped, shock. Wait, what? Yeah. Let me gather myself. Spring at her. Oh, too late. She shot herself. I was like, ah. It'd be interesting to see how the movie puts the pacing of this together. Yeah, right. Right. 
especially, you know, with the, the you know, how, how they do it with, if, do they incorporate any of the like um, international travel elements into it somehow? Yeah. What are yeah. you going to say? Here's, here's a problem that I had. I got, the problem for me was this. Could Lynette really have been fooled by Simon for that long? I did not mm. think that Simon had the acting the chops? sophistication, the acting chops, um, to really convince Lynette, who he never loved, that he, a stranger to her at the beginning of the book, was worth marrying and was in no way after her money. I I was just like, man, I don't see Simon being cagey enough to pull that off, psychologically astute enough to pull that off. I would just think like Lynette has got to be on her guard as any person of great wealth, any single person of great wealth is about suitors that are just after her money. And it just seems like that, I don't know. I, I see just that, didn't but think that Simon could get through that, get through that, um, that barrier of Lynette's worries about um, that some suitor is going to come in and just swoop in for her cash. I think the difference here is that the, I think this is why the book makes it so much about Lynette falling for Simon and then like taking control of it. I don't. So I think she's the one that's blinded. Not that he has blinded her. She, the minute she sees him, she's like, this handsome dude that my friend right, loves right. is mine now. And she, you know, there's a, it's like, she's a power. She's drunk on the power that, that the relationship and her ability to take him when she wants him gives her. So, you know, she has that ability. She can just kind of like, there's this guy she wants, boom, they're married. And she has the power. And I think she's blinded by that um, more than it is that he is such a good actor. Heidi, what do you think about all this? I totally agree with you. I think that, Tim, your point about um, her being on her guard because of her wealth and privilege and prestige is one of the red herrings of the book. I, I think that the, the whole point is that it was Lynette who was naive all along. Everybody mm. saw her as like this man eating, you know, seductor, seductress. And it turns out she was, she was just a girl. She was just a naive girl with too much money. Mm. And, and she fell for it. She fell for a narcissist the same way her friend did. And both of them were used and corrupted by him. Yeah. I can totally believe that she would fall for a narcissist. I just, the thing that I have a hard time with, like Simon wasn't a very good narcissist. (laughs) (laughs) But I, I don't know. I I just think Army Hammer is the perfect cast for him. I think that everything, I I don't know. I, I think the whole point is that he's smarter than any, but he, we all underestimated him. That she, Jackie even, cause we don't have to believe Jackie at the end. Like she, 
she is under his spell. Mm. Like, so she says to Poirot, poor lamb, Simon wouldn't have been able to pull it off without Mm. me. He's not clever enough. I had to get involved to save him from himself. Like she's just fallen for his act as well as Lynette did. Mm. And that's the whole point about Jackie. Like we are told by everybody that Simon isn't very clever, but he pulled this whole thing off using two women, pitting them against each other. And we see from the, even, we don't have to believe Jackie at the end. Like she says, no, it was me. He loved all along. Right. Well, we can believe that she Maybe. thinks that. Yeah. She, we believe that she thinks that, but even see the, the evidence we have against that is in the text because even at the dinner, when, when Poirot overhears them at dinner and they're dancing in the restaurant, even then he says to himself, that little one, she loves him too much. And and even then, he notices the discrepancy in their attachment to each other. He notices that Jackie loves Simon more than Simon loves Jackie. Later mm-hmm. on, we end up taking Jackie's word for it because we're for her, right? We're rooting for her the whole time, which is, again, that psychological subtlety. And this is why the book stands up, is like this triangle that's continually shifting and we're not sure who to believe. And I think we get to the end and Jackie tells us a story and we're tempted to believe the story, but I think she's just as deceived by Simon as Lynette was the whole time. And he's smarter than anybody's giving him credit for, including the woman who claims to love him more than, you know, she loves herself. So then in all three cases, it's people who are just seeking control. So yes. she views Simon in a way that shows her as gives her the most agency. And Lynette thinks she has the agency. And so, you know, maybe in the end, Simon is the one that <clears throat> has the most control because of through manipulation. Right. But so then. So we have to ask what, what is real love as presented in this story, you know, and, and so it, it, it does raise a lot of questions and how we interpret it ends up being or just a really, you know, interesting kind of psychological study. So then why does Poirot let, have sympathy on her in the end? Because, is it because he sees through her story or because he believes her story? Does he see through what she's saying and then out of pity for her, let her not have to like rot away in prison or go through the public humiliation um, of a trial and all that kind of stuff. And so he has sympathy on her because she's been deceived or does he do that because he believes how much. I think that Poirot believes that Jackie loves Simon with, and with, I wish there was an English word for the kind of like devouring obsession that corrupts rather than ennobles that Jackie had for Simon. Right. Like that's the, and that's the thing that ends up being under trial, so to speak, and then within the, that's the biggest dividing line in, in the, moral dividing line, at least in the story, is not whether or not Lynette deserved to die, but whether or not Jackie deserves to be punished for what she did, right? Like, and that's how, that's another kind of interesting twist and red herring within the story and why I think the story holds up over time, even though there's some holes in the plot, right? Mm -hmm. Um, That we're left with this kind of, the, the end of the story is all about Jackie and nothing about our victim, and not even anything about the murderer, right? The real murderer, Simon. 
uh, although Jackie does commit murders, um, but there's a difference. Like we, we recognize there's a difference between the two and the story kind of forces us to ask the question, why? Like if justice on murder is just to be like, if, if, if murder is equal, right. And every murderer is equal. Why do we feel differently about Jackie than we do about Simon? Why are we so easily dismiss Simon and be like, oh, he was a jerk the whole time. Not only a jerk, but like a wicked narcissist. But we look at Jackie and we still have this like lingering kind of affection and, and pity and empathy with her. And I think that's what Agatha Christie is interested in exploring in all of her books is the difference, right? But is there a level of murder, so to speak, a level of culpability? Hmm. Um, and if, if, if when we read this story, we say, no, it's exactly the same. I think that you know, without any kind of qualm, uh, that I, I like, I wonder about that because I feel like there's a difference. I think they should both be held accountable, but the question of degree of accountability and culpability is part of the fabric of Agatha Christie's stories. That's a great point. I, I can see that. Who's more of a narcissist, Simon Doyle or Rebecca from Rebecca? Oh, wow. What a great question. I want to kind of like slightly alter the question and say, who's a better narcissist? Wait, is that what like exactly? more successful or, or, or kind of like more, dramatic yeah, in terms more, of dramatically more successful, more, more successful because no, I just think in getting like, what they want. Yeah. in getting what they want. Exactly. I mean, they both ultimately get what they want, except for Simon doesn't really get away with it. Well, and Rebecca gets dies, so they both die. Yeah. Well, Simon, yeah. Rebecca's successful for longer. Yeah, and right. people still believe in her innocence beyond her death. And so, I'd have to say Rebecca is the more successful yeah, narcissist I agree. than Simon. I, um, but you're right; Simon did get what he wanted in the at, and then. So yeah, I mean, but he I, doesn't I think that's though because really he doesn't question. get to like. Live high on the, you know, he doesn't get to, he doesn't be get the, to take a bath in all of Lynette's money. Yeah, exactly. Right. Which, yeah, in the end, duck moment would have been. <laughs> right. I wish, of course, in the end would have been complicated. You've got all these other per peripheral characters who are going to complicate that, like Pennington and um, uh, Ferguson and, you know, all the other people who are, have their finger in the pot too. And that's the, that's the interesting thing is everybody, there's all these characters that are around that are all trying to do the same thing. Yeah. They're all right. trying to get a piece of what they want, what they want, that, that control over the, uh, you know, the pot, I guess. I don't, I don't know the way of putting yeah. it. Right. By the way, Ferguson, a closeted capitalist. Is that the story? No, he's not a capitalist. He's a Lord. He's a, he's a, he's a member of the aristocracy. But he's capitalist friendly, isn't he? As for after posing, like strewing um, communist literature across his bed, he's much more capitalist friendly than communist friendly in the end. Where do you? I think right? he's more aristocracy friendly because he's British. So the yeah. point was that he was like, he's he went to Oxford and he had an attack of conscience. And he got all woke, right? And then, <laughs> and then he decided he was willing to give that up to get the girl. Yeah. 
like a capitalist. No, <laughs> no, your your point is right. You're, he's much more aristocratic. Yeah, he was willing. He was like owning his identity at the end because, because yeah. to like kind of equalize the ideology. Mm-hmm. Agatha Christie does not like ideology, mm. so she's always trying to humanize it. Which I think I was so formed by Agatha Christie as a reader that <laughs> I kind of You've feel the that same on way. Day. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Tim, you should um, write a book, Shattered yeah. Tranquility, a sociopolitical reading of Agatha Christie's Death on the Nile. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> it's so good. That's it's so, so good. good. Someone's Com- already done it though. Communism, the British Communism, aristocracy, yeah. something about monarchy and nascent, in there. And nascent capitalism on um, the banks of the Nile River. Yeah, exactly. Like exactly. Um, there's got to be something in here about the, the, the jewel thieves as well. They would play into this, you know, the 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 proletariat and the you know it's it's hanging it's right there for you tim it's right there low hanging you. fruit exactly you are you're working on a book that covers it's a novel about the entire history of philosophy you know maybe just do this instead yeah yeah maybe so <laughs> hey by the way um i had an observation that might be a question it seems to me it, the question is this and then I'll give a little explanation. Are all good mystery novels, let me start in a different way. Is the success of a mystery novel wholly dependent upon the success or dexterity with red herrings? I think yes. I'd, I'd unmute myself there. I would like lunge for the unmute button. Hey, at least you I didn't, totally it, think that's what it is. At least the host didn't mute you. Yeah. That's I think, what I suffered earlier, Heidi. Maybe. Okay. So you're sounding a lot like Ferguson before he got converted back to the aristocracy. <laughs> Just got muted again. <laughs> and he also muted you again. <laughs> you know why David doesn't mute me? Why? Because you're in it. league with the <laughs> with the bourgeoisie. <laughs> well, I kind of am. I'm not going to argue with that. Um, Strict mo- I right. <laughs> okay, but you think Go so? On. You think like dexterity with the red herrings is the key? I think what you're saying is brilliant because it's if you can easily follow the clues to solve, it doesn't matter how good the puzzle is. If it's easy to follow the clues, you have to distract people along the way. And, and then you have to explain your red herrings because I've read too many, I I've read other detective stories that will throw in a red herring. And then after the mystery is revealed, there's, there's like hanging red herrings. It's like, well, that you didn't give a good enough explanation. The only purpose of that character or that situation was to be a red herring. And then it's not satisfying mm-hmm. to read it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I, I, yeah. And I think a red herring also has to have like a compelling internal reason within a story, which is hard to provide when you're just trying to kind of unfold a puzzle. It seems really hard. I've never written a m- mystery story before. It seems like it would be really, really hard to do. Yeah. So how do you view the relationship between like a Chekhov's gun situation Mm. and a red herring because my understanding is that like Chekhov's gun would say that every element has to be necessary and that if it's an irrelevant element it should be removed so is it enough for it to be a red herring and exist for that purpose 
Or, David, I want you to ask that question again. I want to just remind people of what the checkoff quote is that you're referring to. I think yeah. it's, correct me if I'm wrong, if there is a gun in the first act, it must go act, go off in the third act. Yeah. Maybe okay. it's, if there's a gun in the second act, it must go off in the third act. I'm going to pull it up here. Okay. So he says, remove everything that has no relevance to the story. If you say in the first chapter that there is a rifle hanging on the wall in the second or third chapter, it absolutely must go off. If it's not going to be fired, it shouldn't be hanging there. And then according to Wikipedia here, he said in a letter, one must never place a loaded rifle on the stage. If it isn't going to go off, it's wrong to make promises you don't mean to keep. Um, He said, you know, this gets brought up on a bunch of his, his, uh, his writing. So if you know, a red herring is the idea is like, it's designed to mislead. So can, mm-hmm. uh, can, is it, is it fulfill the, what Chekhov is saying, this dramatic principle that Chekhov is talking about, if its whole purpose is to mislead? Like what's, how do you view the difference between, you know, a red herring and Chekhov's gun? What's like, what's the relationship there? Or a MacGuffin? <laughs> it, it, to me, it's, it's, the reason that we read mystery novels like this one is because the joy of it is trying to figure it out. Like, isn't that like, I mean, I'm constantly, as I'm reading with every page, I'm like, okay, does my hypothesis hold? Does it not hold? If it doesn't hold, what am I going to, what's my new hypothesis? And so it seems to me like if that's the basic function of a mystery novel, then red herrings are absolutely crucial to the intellectual puzzle solving that is the joy of the novel. So it seems to fit very neatly with what Chekhov is saying. Do you agree? I agree. I totally agree. Because for example, and in the story, there are several of those. Um, For example, the uh, Tim's like caginess around Poirot, right? Tim's a red herring, but he's a red herring that's like very humanized. And then he has his own story arc within the story arc. Um, And so he's not really a loaded gun that has to go off as much as he's a question mark that needs to be explained. And and so what she does is then she gives him his own kind of sub story, right? Yeah. So that at that ties off the red herring um, in a way that's satisfying to the reader while still allowing him to be a red herring. Um, He orients your eyes away from the actual. Mm hmm. Right. Solution. So it's still misdirected. So yeah. her solution to the loaded gun thing is to give these red herring characters their own story trajectory within mm-hmm. the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's good. The only, uh, the only qualification I would add to what Tim is saying is there's the red herrings, but I also think that a good mystery story is a combination of tone or mood and mm, yeah. puzzle, puzzle plus yeah. solution the puzzle plus yeah. the solution like the puzzle is defined by the red herring by the thing that orients you away from the solution in in, in a mystery story and then you work your way through all the red herrings until you find the thing that's not the red herring yeah. so there's the puzzle and the solution but then the great mystery stories have that mood or that tone that makes all of that more than like the puzzle is only going to appeal to some people right yeah, right. But the great mystery stories. Right. You think about Poe, or you think about Ross McDonald, or you think about like, you know, even like even Chekhov or whatever. Go ahead, Heidi. Yeah, well, and I think along with that, 
with the tone piece, which is another reason why I think this book does hold up in spite of the fact that it's a fairly soluble puzzle. I don't think that she cares that much if you figure it out along the way. Um, but I think that each, what really works with this novel that isn't always true across her canon, honestly, uh, and why there are some that are better than others, uh, is that all of her sub stories, all of her like, you know, low plot stories, to use a Shakespearean term, um, are variations on the theme of like imbalanced love. Right. And so you have this kind of overarching theme and all of the characters uh, and 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 the cost of envy. Right. Um, All of the characters kind of uh, fall into this uh, kind of variations on that. Yeah. Even the 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 characters who are like political. It's about power and then like wanting more power. Yes. And like Ferguson ends up, we find out he's surprised a, a, a member of the aristocracy. So then we assume he's going to get the girl, but then she's like, well, I don't choose you, right? Because you're not as good a man as this other man. And so there's like an imbalance there and it has to be resolved. And, and so there's, there's all, you know, with Tim and Rosalie and she wants a mom and that is like, so there's all of these kind of variations on this general theme of, uh, of, of unresolved or unrequited or imbalanced love that end up resolved. So the red herring characters even kind of feed into that overarching theme, um, which really holds up um, upon re even upon rereading. So there's nothing in me that when I reread this, don't, I don't I, like, I enjoy seeing that come up again and again and trying to resolve it in my mind and knowing I'm being kind of led astray and then, uh, and, and falling for it again and, and noticing all these different kind of sub characters and subplots kind of tie in and, and um, resolve with this overarching theme. A side note, I've heard it said that all logical fallacies are variations on one fallacy, that fallacy being the red herring fallacy. And mm-hmm. it might have even been Andrew Kern who said that. I can't remember. But at first I was like, wait, no. The more I thought about it, the more I thought, yeah, that's, I think that's right. Because all logical fallacies, presuming they're not a simple logical mistake, like A is both A and B at the same time in the same case, like that's a very clear, simple infraction of the rules of logic. But logical fallacies... It's all about what is the heart of the matter and what is not the heart of the matter. So, like, think about the trial of Socrates, which is this rhetorical, like, debate between Socrates and his two accusers. His accusers are saying, the problem with your life, Socrates, is that you... um, you misled the youth and that you undermined Athens and you didn't believe in the gods of the city. And Socrates' reply is not, no, that's illogical. His reply is, no, that's not what my life is about. Let me tell you what my life mm-hmm. is about. It's like a recentering of what the main thing is. And it just makes a lot of sense to me that, of course, our great detective, Poirot, has this ability to see the main thing consistently despite all of the distractions, all of the red herrings that are thrown up in his face and thrown up in our face. And it's part of the reason why we, it's so satisfying. You're like, 
man, I could have figured this out, but it takes someone like Perot to kind of cut through all of it and to really figure it out. And it's just so, mm. so gratifying. Um, can I do a red herring of my own? <laughs> the top selling authors of all time. Mm-hmm. I have heard, I mean, this is hearsay and who knows how you would actually calculate such a number that Agatha Christie is number one. Do you know who number two is? Are we like talking about beside the Bible? Yeah. Yeah. I thought, I thought it was Shakespeare one, Agatha Christie two or something like that. I think that's the way that Wikipedia lists it. And that might be it. Maybe Wikipedia is like, figure this out in a way. I heard something different. There's a different number one selling author. So wait, Christie is not one? She is number two, both in my list and in Wikipedia's list. In Wikipedia's list, Shakespeare is number one. Who, who, who's on your list? Mao Zedong. Oh, interesting. Because of the Little hmm. Red Book, which... Okay. Does that count as a sale if you have to own it? Uh, the little, the little <laughs> book. Is it count as a sale? Mm, that's a little bit. That's a little bit of a gray area. But yeah, let's ask. Let's ask some of the. Let's pull the characters in this book. Figure I think what they get, would say then. You would get one who would say, "That's let's legitimate sales." <laughs> Ferguson. <laughs> Early Ferguson, not late Ferguson. <laughs> Early, Early Ferguson. Ferguson would say Ferguson yes. Ferguson the younger, yeah. Ferguson yep. the younger, exactly. The first stage of Ferguson. <laughs> I like Ferguson. I got him too. Great. I came around on yeah. it. So yeah. I've been very confused because um, the movie has some interesting, ca- like they've clearly made some changes because if you look at the cast, they have Bran Osporo. They have someone playing a version of race. And then they've got, uh, they've got Mrs. Bowers. They've got Lynette and Simon. They've got Louise. They've got Jacqueline. They've got the Otterborns and they've got Marie Van Schuyler. Um, but then they've got Annette Benning playing a character named Euphemia, Euphemia, Russell Brand playing Don, Dr. Linus Windlesham. So they've changed the name there. And then they've got Ali Fazal playing Andrew Kachadorian. And then they've got someone playing a character named Meredith Wilson. So they've made some changes and you know, you never know why they have to change a name for whatever reason. If there's a movie coming out with the same character, you just, who knows why the studio would make them do that. Um, but it's, it's, I can't figure out like who would be Ferguson and is there, is there, what are they going to do with the, the thief? Like, is that like, they don't have them, mother son character like tim so that i'm trying to i've been trying to do some sleuthing to figure it out i haven't there's been nothing online that i can see about what changes they have playing in for different people we'll have to go in blind maybe i'm sure the reviews will start to start to show that um i saw a preview the other day for the first time mm -hmm. and I saw this character, it was Russell Brand, and I was like, wait, I know that guy. How do I know that guy? Who is that guy? And yeah. then his face came up again, and I was like, there he is again. Who is he? I know I know him. And he was so, Russell Brand looked so different from his kind of like crazy-eyed, 
hippie-haired self because he was all cleaned up for the role. Yeah. Yeah, it yeah. took me a hard second to figure <laughs> out who he was. Yeah, it's an interesting yeah. choice. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, it's going to be an interesting, interesting movie. I think it's kind of like perfectly the perfect story to turn into a, a compelling movie. Who knows if they'll yeah. pull it off. Yeah. But. yeah. I got to say army hammer being play, playing the role of Simon Doyle. That's just perfect. What is that's it about so army hammer that he is both so attractive and so frightening, just kind of standing still. Right. It's true. I don't know. Ironically, he comes from, a ridiculous amount of money. And so I can see that. And he so maybe like he's just kind of that he money. plays that he mm-hmm. play a character who wants money. Yeah. His, his, um, his dad or grandfather is an oil tycoon. Oh, wow. Uh, who ran like one of the big, the giant oil companies that got bought out by somebody else at some point. But huh. uh, I think his dad is also a huge huge businessman so he comes mm. from this all this oil money yeah kind of yeah. has that uh that vibe about him even in the social network which is one of my his, his performance in the social network is one of my favorite he's great. performances in any movie ever he is great in that he's so good as the twins both of them yeah right yeah. <laughs> both <laughs> plays of two characters and the way he plays them like playing off of each other it's uh-huh. it's it's so good it's like honestly it's like uh Orson Welles. It, it honestly is Orson Welles. Orson Welles just as an actor? Just, what you, just the way or the way, the kinds of things Orson Welles could do as an actor. Oh, 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 oh yeah. It, that's what he's doing in, in that movie. Yeah. I think it's that good. Yeah. Um, well, okay, let's talk about some final thoughts on the book. We're going to do Q&A next week. So if you have questions, post them on the Facebook thread. Shoot me an email. It's david at goldberrybooks.com. Uh, a couple of different ways you can do that. Um, we'll have a schedule out for our next book, which is As I Lay Dying. I'll have that up in the next week or so. So be on the lookout for that. Uh, but in the meantime, it's time for your questions. So you have, those are your options. Those are your places to post those. Tim, what are your final thoughts on this book? Hold on, let I me think meet, meet I you enjoyed... real quick. Murder on the Orient Express more. I think I had a, I think the atmosphere in Murder on the Orient Express was kind of denser than in this, in this book. Oh, it's but just I the did, dry heat of Egypt though. Oh, is that right? It just yeah. kind of burned off the atmosphere. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's, it's dry. dry. It's not humidity. It's not the humidity. <laughs> right. Um, and I guess, I mean, I guess my real closing thought is, just how satisfying it was to guess the murderer. And- <laughs> I couldn't resist. Where'd Tim go? That was so resist. weird. Yeah. I resist. It's like, that was so like I walked out I and someone had just coming. set a tea up for me. I knew it was me. coming. I was <laughs> like, was so how deep into this can I get before I get host muted? <laughs> host muted is like something like tool. we sh- like what's, I think that needs to become some sort of a meme. Hashtag host mute. Uh, I got, I just got host muted. Um, hello. Will you stop host muting me? I feel like, I, I feel like all you do is host mute people that disagree Heidi, with you. What are your you. final thoughts? <laughs> um, I think I, so I, as you guys know, I just really like this book, but I think it is important to, 
it is just for fun, you know, like, um, so this is, there is a lot of depth to this story. Um, there's a lot of depth to Agatha Christie's stories, but they are genre fiction and it's okay to just enjoy them. Um, and so I think I would just, my final thought is just listeners. It's, if you just want to like devour these books over avocado toast and sparkling water, which is what I do, because I'm not Ferguson. I am super If you want bougie. to engage with these books yeah. in, a, yeah, in a bougie sort of Light-hearted way. Lighthearted way, right? On a striped totally blanket fine. on the beach kind of way. Exactly, yes. Or alternately, um, should you want to have the proletariat in mind, mm. then, you know, you do you. That's right. <laughs> I'm trying to even think of what you would do then. Like, well, you'd write a book about to, the socio-political economic factors oh, of yes. this book. Yeah. Uh, with the title, uh, what did I say? Shattered Tranquility or something? Yeah. Well, and that's what's fun about genre fiction is if you want to like analyze it, cool. Like, oh, but you can just enjoy it. As long as you don't get host muted. <laughs> what? Host muted. Look host what muted. my. You guys see what's on my shoulder. I did notice that you've Lucas got just, a, a lizard. He just on came your up shoulder. behind me and put a. I think I might be getting assassinated <laughs> by the proletariat of, that are my children. <laughs> Lucas looks like he's considering it. I yeah, gotta he's say, like, hmm, for Lucas, enough. that is so absolutely on brand. <laughs> when we were last at your house, Lucas Uh-oh. had like, like a flock of lizards that he kind of hosted slash abused slash <laughs> transported to various parts of your property. It's kind of like genre fiction. And you can enjoy is. it or you could tear it apart. Uh, yeah, like, right. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Do you want to say hi? You want to say hi? What's your favorite? Did he say hi? He's, he's hiding key. though. He's hiding. Oh, I see. He's hiding. So he's not the one that would be jump on the mic. <laughs> he is... He is wreaking havoc on this episode, though. Um, <laughs> all right, guys. We got things to do. You guys got... Heidi's going on a trip. Tim, are you going to Aruba again? Or, like, what's your... Yep, heading down to Aruba right after this. It's like weekly Aruba trip. Right. Yeah, man. All right, well, this has been a lot of fun. And uh, we will, again, dig a little bit into whatever you guys want us to dig into when you ask us questions. Uh, so, again, Facebook page, email me. However you want to get us questions, do it. Lots of great content over here uh, on all, all the different pods. We've got the Daily Poem. We've got the Place Thing, which is Henry the Fourth. Digging into that, we've got we got a lot of stuff going on. So um, check out all the different podcasts. And uh, thanks for everybody who thanks thanks to everybody who is listening, commenting, spreading the word, and supporting the show on Patreon. We appreciate it. All right, with that, for Tim McIntosh, Tim, do you have any final thoughts that you want to? No final thought. Ah. I didn't get to it in time. <laughs> got <laughs> me again. Got me again. <laughs> Heidi, what about you? No, I'm afraid to have any final thoughts. My goal, my new goal in life is to never get hosted. Never get hosted. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah well. life goals. <laughs> well, we'll see. We'll see. For Heidi White, for Tim McIntosh, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. And until next time, happy reading. <laughs>